So briefly by way of review, Jesus has come to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem and he's come up uh, discreetly, not with the entrance of the crowds altogether for his own reasons. But here he is now in the temple in a very prominent place teaching and the people are scandalized that he's teaching in the temple when he's not an official rabbi. And of course the the Jews, which is John's term for the religious leaders basically, are trying to kill him. In the passage we just read, they're going to send people to arrest him. This is the kind of hostility that Jesus is facing. And Jesus has begun explaining to them the real reason why it is that they reject him and why they hate him. It's because their will is not to do God's will. Look back at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And so Jesus is in the middle of this session where he's confronting these people about their unbelief and the real reasons for their unbelief. We're kind of halfway through a narrative when we pick up in verse 25. Now in verse 25 it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said... Now, the therefore doesn't really bear any obvious connection to what goes immediately before it. But the therefore harkens back to verse uh, 14, where Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Their amazement is that here Jesus is, as verse 26 says, speaking openly and the authorities say nothing to him. So Jesus is speaking openly and the authorities are saying nothing to him. Therefore, the people in verse 25 said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is speaking openly and the authorities say nothing to him. So that's a little bit of the context, just to refresh everybody's memory and get us on the same page as we look at this section today. And here before us, Jesus reiterates his heavenly origin and mandate. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. So he's conceding to them a little bit. They say, well, we know where this man's from. So he's He's kind of conceding the point. Yeah, in a sense, you know me and you know where I come from. But he says, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. So in one sense, you know where I come from. You know I'm from Galilee. But in another sense, I'm from someone who sent me and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. And he sent me. So here Jesus is, again, not speaking as plainly as he could. But let's be honest, this is not a terribly complex riddle. Jesus is simply claiming to be sent by God. I think everybody picks up on that at various places in the Gospels. Even the Pharisees, who are spiritually speaking as blind as bats pick up on the fact that Jesus claimed to be from God. So this is not rocket science here. Jesus is saying, on one hand, yes, you know where I'm from, Galilee. But on the other hand, I'm from God. 
and you don't know God. Verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going, where? Notice this, then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Okay, so before we even look at their response, where is Jesus going? Right, back to God. He tells them. Now look at their response. Where does this man intend to go? (laughs) Hold that thought, we're coming to their response. But just notice here, Jesus alluding to the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, reiterates that He is ultimately from God, has come here, and is going back to God. This is Jesus' clear teaching in this section of Scripture. As this teaching is going on, there are two responses to Him, basically. Belief and unbelief. So there are believers and unbelievers. This is basically the way people are polarized. As Jesus teaches these things, as Jesus reiterates these things. And the unbelievers offer excuses. We could call them objections, which is a little more sanitized. And I will, I will call them objections at, at points today. Kind of using it interchangeably with excuses. But they are excuses. They're not just objections. As we saw last week, as I reminded you already... Verse 17 teaches us that if anyone's will is to do God's will, in other words, if you are sincere, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether Jesus is speaking on his own authority. Right? Just work it backwards like we did last week. If you don't know, if you've you've read through the Bible, you've been exposed to the gospel, and you don't know whether it's true or not, What is the implication from what Jesus taught us? Your will is not to do God's will. In other words, you don't have an intellectual problem. You have a moral problem. So these objections that the unbelievers are raising in this section are not really just mere intellectual objections that they're struggling sincerely to get past. They are excuses. Pretenses for unbelief. Rather than real, insurmountable, substantial reasons why one might legitimately not believe. And the first one that they raise is, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 27. Well, I'll tell you, there's one thing that I'm not sure where it comes from. But it's not Jesus. It's that idea. Where does that idea come from? Not the Old Testament. So, where does this idea come from? That when the Christ appears, no one will know where He comes from. Evidently, Jewish tradition. By process of elimination. It's not the scripture. So it has to basically just be man-made tradition. Here these guys are now raising the objection that we know for, sh- for sure when the Christ comes, no one will know where He comes from. We're going to answer it in a moment. Just bear in mind that that's their first objection. Next, Jesus' teaching is supposedly unintelligible. 
verses 35 and 36. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Look, these guys are acting as if Jesus is speaking unintelligibly. That no reasonable person could be expected to understand what Jesus, this incoherent babbler, says. What does he mean? Where does this man intend to go? You can almost hear the sneering tone of their voices. Next, in verses 41 and 42, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So I guess these are different guys. Because now they're saying, when the Christ comes, we're going to know he's from Bethlehem. Not when the Christ comes, we're not going to know where he's from. So I guess these are different guys. They say in verse 52 along the same lines, this is the religious leaders. Say in verse 52 along the same lines, no prophet arises from Galilee. The religious leaders say that. Bear these, bear these things in mind. And then, so, the last reason or excuse for unbelief that is given in this section is in verse 48. None of the authorities or the Pharisees have believed in him. Oh, well, I guess it can't be true then. Because people in power never get things wrong. Pastors are always right. Right? Bishops are always right. Apostles are always right. Pharisees are always right. Right? <laughs> so these are, the, these are the reasons. These are the excuses given for unbelief in this passage. They are excuses. Because as we saw last week, we established that. We belabored the point last week. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. There is no sincere seeker who has the data of the gospel before him, is acquainted with the truth about Jesus, but cannot settle whether it's true or not. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral, it is due to a moral bent away from God, which we saw last week. So these are excuses for unbelief. In contrast to these excuses, we also see in this passage the clearer thinking of the believers in this passage. So there are unbelievers and believers in this passage. Look at, look at verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. Okay, implicitly... The objections that were being raised by the unbelievers in this section were considered, tried, and found wanting by those who eventually believed in Jesus. Because if this was not the case, and these objections were deemed to be reasonable and to have force, then these people wouldn't have believed. So they were hearing these excuses that were being offered, but they were like, no, nah, that doesn't make sense. That's not a legitimate reason not to believe in Jesus. 
So many did believe. Implicitly, this means they must have been able to get over the objections that were raised. And it's not that hard to get over these objections. Remember the first one. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. Micah 5, chapter 2. Or pardon me, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this objection, when the Christ comes, we're not going to know where he's from. It's not that hard to get over. These people perhaps thought about this verse, quoted this verse, reminded one another of this verse. No, we know that we are going to know where he's from. So saying that we got to reject this guy because we know where he's from is nonsense. The next objection that was raised, that Jesus' teaching is supposedly unintelligible. Verses 35 and 36 Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Uh, Excuse me. Back to the one who sent him. That's what he said. Right? He literally told them, I'm going to the one who sent me. And then they go, where does this man intend to go? As if Jesus hadn't been clear about it. Right? Does he intend to go to the Greeks? And teach the Greeks. Well, there's a very reasonable way in which we may interpret Jesus' words. It's not as if no reasonable meaning could be ascribed to Jesus' words. It's not as if it was incoherent babble. Jesus said, I am going to him who sent me. Right? You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. It's not that hard to realize that Jesus is not talking about a geographical movement, say from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee up in the north, or from uh, Israel to outside of Israel to the dispersion to teach the Greeks. It's not that hard to realize that Jesus is speaking about having been sent with divine authority and going to God. You could easily... If you were to read or to listen to Jesus' words in a fair way, in an unbiased way, you could easily put a charitable spin on something that's maybe a little bit cryptic and understand pretty easily what Jesus was saying. He's going to God. Jesus' statement is not unintelligible in the least. There's no... Look at the way they spun it. Does he intend to go to the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Where did you get that? Jesus said, I am going to him who sent me. Where did you get that I'm going to the Greeks to teach the Greeks? Look at the unfair way in which these people spun Jesus' words to render them incoherent. Evidently, these believers saw that this objection was wanting, was lacking in persuasiveness. And so they believed that didn't stand in their way. 
The third objection, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is very much like the first objection, isn't it? We know where he's from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Basically, this this is related to that in in the sense that at the root of the objection is he's from the wrong place. Right? Whether he's from somewhere, and we shouldn't know where he's from, or whether he's from Galilee, and he should be from Bethlehem. Basically, at the root, these are kind of the same objection. He's He's not from the right place. Right? No prophet arises from Galilee, the religious leaders say. Well, we read Micah 5 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You got to give these people credit because at least they're looking, at least superficially, at the Old Testament. And seeing, okay, well, it's prophesied that the Christ will come from Bethlehem, but this guy is from Galilee. So you've got to give them a little more credit. But what about Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2? It's a familiar passage that we often read at Christmas time. For there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. Listen, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And now the familiar part that we often read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For... To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Galilee of the nations is where the people who walked in darkness shall see a great light. When a child is born, when a son is given. If I ask you, where am I from? You're going to say Canada. But let's say that I go preach in New York City. And then they say, where are you from? What might I say? 
you can see that someone can be from one place and another in a different sense. Obviously, you can't be from one place and another in the same sense, in one and the same sense. If, if, I, if I gave you two different answers for where is my birthplace, <laughs> obviously, that's ludicrous and, and inconsistent and incompatible. But you can see how you can answer the question, where are you from, in two different ways. And so Jesus is from Bethlehem. We know that. We've read Luke 2. And Jesus is from Galilee. And so they're not wrong in seeing that he's from Galilee. But they are wrong in saying he's not from Bethlehem. And even if he is from Galilee. Isaiah 9 expects that in Galilee, people who dwelt in darkness are going to see a great light with the advent of the Messiah. And so this is not that hard of an objection to get over either. That no prophet arises from Galilee. I would be inclined, had I been there, been familiar with that passage, to to raise the question, what about Isaiah 9? Where the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. Pharisees, teachers of the law, what say you? You could make a strong case that Galilee is very closely tied, in fact, to the advent of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 9. And then the last objection that was raised, none of the authorities or the Pharisees have believed in Him. In verse 48 of John chapter 7. Are you... uh, Have you also been deceived... Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Him? These men go to arrest Jesus. And they're they're evidently, to some degree, thinking for themselves. These guys are not simply the sort of guys that go and do their job and then excuse themselves saying, I was just following orders. Evidently, these guys go to arrest Jesus... In verse 32. And they witness Jesus teaching. They hear. And perhaps they overhear some of the gossip of the crowds. And some of the wrestling that the crowds are going through and working through. And these guys decide not to arrest Jesus. Which is a good choice or a bad choice? A good choice. But now here they are, which is understandably an awkward situation. They go back to those who sent them. Why did you not bring him? Verse 45. They say, well, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You understand what's going on here? Don't think for yourself, you dummies. You, You don't know the law, and neither do the crowds. The people out there that are going after Jesus, they don't know anything. Don't follow them. Listen to us. We are telling you, Jesus is bad. Go arrest Him. Don't think for yourself. Don't let other people dissuade you from this mission that we're on. 
to arrest and to kill Jesus. We know the law. Well, we've already seen that the scriptures actually speak of Jesus coming from Galilee, which they expressly deny in verse 52. The scriptures in more than Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 9 testify very clearly of the Messiah's identity, the shape of his person, and the shape of his ministry. I think it was Don Carson who said, the Old Testament tells us what the Messiah is. The New Testament tells us who the Messiah is. Who is it? Who is it that has read the Old Testament properly? The Pharisees who say, we should arrest and kill this guy. Or the crowds in verse 31 who say, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? You see what the, the way the crowds are reasoning is. This man fits the bill. The Old Testament has led us to expect someone. What are we waiting for? What are we really expecting? When the Christ comes, will it be more evident that he's the Christ than this man? So they believe in him. Whereas the Pharisees say, no, no, no. Those people don't even know the law. Believe us. Go arrest him. We want to crucify him. The authorities, the Pharisees, have not actually read the scripture right. This is kind of a little bit of a sidebar. But we ought to note that it is the scriptures that are our final authority. We don't reject tradition. In fact, we value tradition. Our church holds to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which was published publicly in the year 1689. So that's a reasonably old document. We don't, we're not trying to do anything new. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We value tradition. We think we can learn from it. We think that a lot of people who are probably a lot more studied and frankly smarter than a lot of us, if not all of us, people who learn like Latin, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, like by the time they were yay high. There are a lot of people who have given thought to a lot of deep things. And we think that there's value in like listening to the tradition of the church. And recognizing that a lot of things have been worked through. And a lot of conclusions have been drawn that are valid and are sound. And they've shown their work. Remember on your, your math tests in school? You're not supposed to just write the answer. You're supposed to show your work. The work has been shown and there's books to be read and things to be studied. Tradition is good, or can be good. We also value the hierarchy that God has set up in the church. We believe that there are church leaders. We're not, 
we're not trying to do we're not trying to have a flat organization in which there is no authority and we're all just kind of just coming here and it's basically like a potluck authority wise everybody just brings a suggestion and we kind of decide by consensus and away we go we're not trying to do that either we believe in church officers we believe in pastors and deacons we believe that God has ordained these offices to rule over the church. So we're not anti-tradition, we're not anti-leadership. But if the scriptures say that we should believe in Jesus, and the Pharisees and the authorities do not believe in Jesus, and say that we shouldn't because they don't either, who do we go with? The scriptures or the Pharisees and the authorities? You see, and so we need to recognize that even tradition is subject to the correction of scripture. And even church leaders are subject to the correction of scripture. And so there's a difference between what is uh, the commonly known phrase that that we call sola scriptura, which is different than uh, what some have called Nuda Scriptura. Nuda, obviously, refers to nude, right? Naked Scripture. Scripture alone being our sole authority is different than the only thing we ever think about is Scripture. Right? We don't listen to tradition. We don't listen to church leaders. We just go in our basement, right? Or we go in our our guest room, or we, we go out into a forest and we have our Bibles, And we draw our conclusions accordingly. Right? There's a difference between those two approaches. And so we listen. But we recognize at the end of the day, Scripture is our sole authority. So these believers here in this passage are able to get past, obviously, the excuses and the objections of the unbelievers that are raised. And they believe... In Jesus. Now we know that the believers did not become believers simply because they thought more clearly than the unbelievers by virtue of natural ability or intelligence or innate wisdom or innate receptivity or whatever else. It's not a case that. Jesus spoke to a multitude of people, some of whom were more intelligent than others, and the intelligent ones believed. That's not what happens here. It's not the case that Jesus spoke to a multitude of people, and some of them were wiser than others, and the wise ones believed. It's not the case that Jesus spoke to a a mixed multitude of people, and never mind intellect or wisdom some people were just more trusting and more receptive and more childlike and the trusting childlike ones believed that's not what happened here we know from the study of the whole scripture but even our study in John so far unless a man be born again he cannot even see the kingdom of God let alone enter it, right? 
So God, by the work of His Spirit, must have given these believers the new birth, enabling them in the first place to savingly believe, wooing them to love Christ instead of continuing in their hostility towards Him, shining so much light upon Christ Jesus that they can no longer suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Though these believers have come to think more clearly by God's grace, the difference between them and the unbelievers was not in the first place anything in them, including clear thinking. Neither is the difference today in our day and age between believers and unbelievers anything intrinsically in us, including clear thinking. Rather, the difference is the free, unmerited, sovereign grace of God. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And we know, we know the memorable first line. Amazing powers of intellect. How sweet the faculties that saved a wretch like me. Amazing receptivity. I may not have been the sharpest tool in the shed, but when the gospel came, I was ready. I was ready to receive it like a child. Amazing receptivity. How sweet the faculties. Not amazing wisdom. Not amazing free will. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Because of that amazing grace, I was blind, but now I see. You see, if you saw first, before the grace, then it wasn't your grace that helped you see. If something else helped you see, then you should change the first line of that hymn to whatever it is that you think the Bible teaches in the place of grace. It was grace when we were blind that brought us to see. It was not we who found ourselves, nor was it us who caused our eyes to be opened. We didn't believe in order to have our eyes opened. That would be an impossibility. Our eyes were opened in order that we might believe. That's the new birth. And that's the work of God's grace alone. However, from a human perspective, from the perspective of human responsibility, we see in this passage believers and unbelievers. We see those who make excuses and those who don't. We see those who come to Christ and those who don't. From a human perspective, from the perspective of human responsibility, how does one come to Christ? 
Is it passive? Do we just wait? If you're an unbeliever sitting here today, do you just wait until the Holy Spirit does something to you and zaps you or something until you have certain feelings? Do you just wait and you say, well, I need the new birth. As we saw last week and as we're seeing again in this passage today, we need to stop making unreasonable excuses for not coming. We saw in verse 24 last week, Jesus taught us, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And that means basically, don't make a superficial judgment, but rather make a thorough investigation. When we actually do that, with regard to spiritual things and the identity of Christ and His message and our coming to Him and our unbelief, we will see that what has been keeping us from Christ is not a lack of evidence, but a moral bent away from God. And we will see that the excuses that we have been raising are very much like the excuses that are raised here in this passage before us today. Which kept people from Christ. I've already shown you that each and every one of them can be worked through. But some people are happy with just a superficial consideration of the subject. Write Jesus off. Don't deal with it anymore. You just have your popular level argument, which really could be unraveled, could be proven wrong. If you were willing to actually make an investigation of it, have a conversation about it. But you're happy. You got your reasons. You don't really want to talk about it. You don't really want to look into it. You got your reasons. When you begin to judge with right judgment, you see that what's keeping you from Christ is not this. But this, what's keeping you from Christ, unbeliever, is not that your reasons are too good, but that your heart is too bad. You need to stop making unreasonable excuses for not coming. If you have questions, there are answers. Begin to search the scriptures, look at them, work through them. If your will is to do God's will, you are going to know the truth of Jesus' teaching. Stop making unreasonable excuses, unbeliever, for not coming. Another thing we must do in coming to Christ is what Jesus stands up in the middle of the feast to proclaim. We must come to Christ and drink. If anyone thirsts, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. When we start judging with right judgment, and we start seeing our own depravity, and we start to see that the pastor's right, the preacher's right. He's telling me what the Bible actually says. 
And it is true of my heart. I am making unreasonable excuses because of a moral bent away from God. Where we start to realize that. That we don't even want God. And when we keep looking and we see God's love for a world like this. In which people don't even want Him. But we see that God so loved that world. That He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. When we read and we continue looking and judging with right judgment, instead of superficially by appearances, and we get into Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we start reading, and we realize that you may be reconciled to God, and you might... Have a Father in Heaven who loves you and cares for you. When you start to realize the blessedness of the Christian life and the desperate plight that you are in as an unbeliever alienated from God at enmity with Him, the Scripture says. When you start to realize That you are living your best life now, already. And it gets worse when you die. As John MacArthur said, because you go to hell. And that this is it. What you have, these temporal, fleeting pleasures, is it. You start to get thirsty. For something better. You start to get thirsty. For what you find in the pages of scripture. When you stop judging by appearances. It looks like the Christians are losing. It looks like the Christians are missing out. It looks like everybody in the world is having fun. It looks like Jesus is wrong. The world is right. When you get past that judging by appearances and judge with right judgment and look at what the scripture says and the evidence that is here and the truth of it. And you start to realize the disparity between life outside of Christ Jesus in your lostness and the future prospects of your lostness in eternity apart from God. And you start to realize the blessedness Of belonging to God and being numbered among His people. You get thirsty. And you want that. It's like coming into a supermarket. Not just after a long walk, but after you've been lost in a gully for like three days. And you come in and there are some nice refrigerated beverages. I want that. No, more than that. I need that. You start to get thirsty. And what does Jesus say? If anyone thirsts. If anyone thirsts. Let him come to me and drink. Unbeliever. You need to stop making 
on reasonable excuses for not coming to Jesus. And you need to come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in you to help you begin to judge with right judgment. To open your blind eyes that you can see. To unlock your deaf ears so you can hear. To take out a heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh so you can feel. So you can love. The Holy Spirit awakens the thirst. But when you get thirsty, you need to come. The Holy Spirit will not come to Jesus for you. That is in our place, in your place. We are not saved by means of the Holy Spirit's faith in Jesus Christ. It is by grace, through faith, that ye are saved. But that faith needs to be your own. You got to come to Jesus. Excuses and objections may be swirling around in your heart. But they're not as strong as you think, unbeliever. Have the courage to face them honestly. Have the courage to look around and see that it is simply you and your moral resistance that keeps you from Christ. Have the courage to hear and acknowledge the diagnosis that John chapter 7 provides. That you have not come to Christ simply because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not an intellectual problem, but a moral one. You have been on the side of the objectors in John chapter 7 with their superficial excuses. Hear Christ calling now. Come and drink. Do you see your sin? Do you see the love of God in sending Christ to fulfill all the demands of the law in the place of sinners? Do you see the blessedness of entering into a reconciled relationship with God by grace through faith in that Messiah? Do you thirst to hear Christ calling, come and drink? Oh, Holy Spirit, we know that unbelievers need your regenerating work. Please do it. But unbelievers, you will never be able to blame the Holy Spirit for your torment and hellfire. For missing out on eternal communion with God. It is not the Holy Spirit who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. It's you. It's not the Holy Spirit whose lack of thirst 
kept him from coming to Christ is yours, your contentment in your sin. It is you who would not, have not until now come to Christ to drink. Repent and believe the gospel. Hear Christ Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink.